The sermon text for today is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1475. Please listen as I read God's word. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you this morning yet, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. I want to give you just a very brief uh, status update before we get into the message this morning. Uh, in the weekly email for the last couple weeks, we've, uh, or maybe a couple weeks ago, we asked you to pray. Uh, Dave and I, who's our, he's our director of Next Gen Ministries, and we came up with the idea, we cooked up the idea of, you know, it's cold outside, it's getting colder, and we have every single day we have hundreds of people out in our parking lot who are dropping off kids and picking up kids because Wilshire Park Elementary is like right there and it's dangerous. There's not enough space for all the parents to go through. So we have just crazy amounts of people in our parking lot every single day, dropping off students, picking up students. And we were trying to figure out what does it look like for us just to connect with people who live in our community. And so we decided since it is uh, getting cold out, we would have a table with, uh, with hot chocolate. And so we just bought like a crazy amount of hot chocolate packets made some hot water and passed out some invitation cards. And uh, the first week, I think we handed out maybe like 60 cups of uh, hot chocolate. Uh, This past Friday, it was like 90-something cups of hot chocolate we passed out. And so our, our goal with this right now is simply to just like build trust with parents in the neighborhood. Uh, You can tell the, the, the students, they love it. (laughs) And you can tell that the parents are like, You know, there's a handful of parents that will, like, come up and talk to us. But most of them are kind of, like, staying back. And so we want to be a blessing to our community. And we want to get to know families and students and parents and love them. And obviously our hope is that they would come to embrace the life-giving way of Jesus. And lowering those walls of division or, or walls of suspicion that might exist with parents who are wondering, what is it we're doing? We have people trying to pay us. You know, well, how much, how much does it cost per cup? And it's like, dude, it's a cup of hot chocolate. Just take it, <laughs> you know? Uh, so we just want to encourage you to continue to pray for us. Uh, we've, we've sort of been doing that just, just in-house right now. We haven't invited other people from the church to come be a part of that just because we want it just to be really simple. We also don't want it to be, like, overwhelming or intimidating or to feel like it's some sort of bait and switch for, for parents. Um, so just pray for us that we would get to uh, have conversations with parents and we get to know the names of students and we get to love them well. And point them to Jesus. Uh, With that being said, I want to invite you to join me as we pray before we look at this passage this morning. 
God, we want to have hearts that are like your heart. We want to love the people that you love. We want to love the people that you want us to love. As we look at this passage today, God, would you stir something within us? By your spirit, would you meet each of us where we are? Would you give each of us what we need? Would you correct us and teach us? God, continue to form us into a community of people who love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This is a hard teaching. And so we need your grace, God. But we're confident in your provision of that grace. We're confident that you desire to meet us and to teach us. And so we ask that you would instruct us now, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all got people in our lives who are hard to love. This is not the time to look at the person next to you. <laughs> it's not the time to look at your spouse or to, you know, you know, elbow your kid or your parent in the, in the side. <laughs> but if you have to, go ahead and do it. It's fine. I understand. Uh, but we've all got people in our life who are hard to love. And for some people, it may be just that uh, our personalities with each other just clash. It may be that they have deeply wounded us in some ways. They've hurt us. It may be that we just find that person, we can't even explain it, we just find that person really irritating. It, or it may be that they have beliefs, or they have a lifestyle, or they have convictions that we just really strongly disagree with. We all have people in our life that are hard to love, and in your life, that might be your, someone who's your neighbor, someone who lives in your neighborhood, or lives on your, uh, in your dorm next to you or with you, <laughs> maybe someone who lives on the same floor in your apartment complex or whatever living facility you find yourself in. Uh, for some of you, those people that you find hard to love might be classmates, might be teachers, might be professors. For some of us, it might be people who are our coworkers. It might be the customers or the clients that we serve in our jobs. It might be bosses. It might be managers. It might be, for some of us, family members. Right? It seems like every family has one of those people who it's like, man, you just have to ruin Thanksgiving every single year, don't you? <laughs> right? We've all got people like that in our own families that we find it hard to love. I remember when I was in high school, I worked at a grocery store, and there were people that I worked with that, to be honest with you, I found it very difficult to love. <laughs> My manager at the time, uh, had he was nearing retirement, and we all knew it, in part because he talked about it a lot, in part because he had a clock, a countdown clock, that is, on the desk, which is like right out in the middle of everyone's working area. And so he was constantly reminded, like, man, you've only got this many days, this many hours, this many seconds left until you retire, right? And so I remember just feeling frustrated by that. I remember feeling frustrated uh, by people's uh, pace of work and that they didn't seem to want to work as fast as me. I remember feeling frustrated that it felt like there was work when I came in for the later shift, that there was work that could have been done. Uh, there was time for it, but they just decided to leave it for me instead. And I just remember feeling frustrated by that. And it was hard to love some of those people that I worked with. And of course, as I look back and as I reflect on it, I realize more and more that I was just as hard to love, just in different ways. 
We've all got people in our life that are difficult to love. And some of the hardest people to love are the ones who have different political convictions than us. We've been in a series, four-week series, thinking about the subject of politics. And there's two sort of main things that we've been saying. Number one is that the way we do politics right now in our cultural environment is super broken. We can all sense it. We can all feel it. The tension and the division and the polarization and just everything that comes with that and the fact that our identity is more and more now tied to our political leanings and convictions and political parties than it seems like it's ever been. The way we are doing politics in our culture right now is fundamentally flawed and broken. The second thing we've been saying is that because of that, more than ever, followers of Jesus need to be people of virtue and character. We have to be people who actually embody the way of Jesus. Because it matters not only where we end up in life, it matters how we get there. It matters how we vote. It matters what policy we support. And it matters as much, if not even more, what kind of people we are in the process. It matters how we engage the world of politics. And so we've been thinking about what are the virtues that we as a church community especially, you know, we're not responsible for the church broadly. We're not responsible for anyone else besides those people who are in the room, who are watching online, who are listening later. We're not responsible for anyone else, but for us as a church, what do we sense God calling us to cultivate so that we can engage well in the world of politics? And we've been thinking about the virtues of presence, the virtue of humility, the virtue of love, and the virtue of courage. So this morning, we're thinking about this virtue of love. As we look at these words of Jesus today, we're going to learn two things and then apply what we learn to the realm of politics. So the first thing we see in this passage this morning is this. It's easy to love people like us, right? It's easy to love people who are like, <laughs> who are like us. This is in part because we are social creatures, right? God has designed us in his likeness and in his image. We're designed for community. We're designed for relationships. And so part of what that means is that we tend to gravitate towards people who are like us. We tend to gravitate. We tend to be drawn towards people who look like us or who think like us or who believe like us or who have similar values as us or have similar interests or similar hobbies maybe who have a similar vocation, maybe who have a similar socioeconomic status, maybe have a similar cultural background as us. We're drawn to people with similar viewpoints and similar political convictions as us, right? We're just drawn towards people who are like us. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with being drawn towards people who are like us. And there's nothing inherently wrong about loving people who are like us. We ought to love people who are like us. But what Jesus tells us in this passage is that our love cannot be limited to the people who are just like us. Jesus says our love must extend beyond the people who are like us to include, Jesus' words, not mine, even our enemies. Listen to what he says. Verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what Jesus is doing in these verses is he's correcting a misinterpretation of the law of Moses that was sort of floating around out there in the Jewish community. 
So when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, essentially that means there are people out there who were teaching this, right? Uh, there are, you know, scribes or Pharisees or religious leaders or synagogue leaders, or there's someone out there in the Jewish community. This is like a prevalent belief that's out there that we are supposed to love our neighbors and hate our enemies. And Jesus here is confronting, uh, confronting that belief. He's correcting that belief. Now, there's two parts to what the people are hearing. On the one hand, they're hearing, love your neighbor. And on the other hand, they're hearing, hate your enemy. One of those things is explicitly commanded in the Hebrew Bible. One of them is not. I'll give you one guess as to which of those is not commanded by God. Hate your enemy. Okay, good. (laughs) It would be really bad if any of us got that answer wrong, right? In Leviticus chapter 19 where a lot of us spend our time in Bible reading. Uh, Leviticus 19 (laughs) says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So this is explicitly commanded in the Hebrew Bible. Love your neighbor. Love people who are like you, absolutely. But there's nowhere in the Hebrew Bible, there's nowhere in the entire Bible for that matter, that comes anywhere close to commanding anything like hate your enemy. What I think is that this love your enemy or love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy, this is human logic at its worst, is what I think this is. You know, if I'm commanded to love my neighbor, it stands to reason that the opposite is true. If I'm supposed to love people who are like me, it stands to reason that, you know, I should do the opposite for people that are not like me, people that I don't like, people that are my enemies. This is human logic at its worst. And Jesus is correcting this uh, distorted teaching that's out there that we should love our neighbors, those people who are like us, and we should hate our enemies. It's easy to love people like us. And Jesus goes on to tell us that doing so makes us no different than anyone else. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people... What are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? So notice these two groups of people he brings up. He says there's tax collectors and there's pagans. These are two groups of people that would have been at the top of the list for anyone who is a Jewish person. They would say, yeah, top of the list for who my enemies are. Tax collectors, because tax collectors were Jewish people who went to work on behalf of the occupying Roman government to collect taxes for them. And not only did they collect taxes from the occupying Romans, they made a very lucrative living by extorting, by overcharging, and that's how they would make this insane amount of money, is they could charge whatever they wanted. And so they were traitors who went to work on behalf of the Roman government who cared more about people than about, uh, cared more about profit rather than about people. And they extorted their own people for financial gain. And so the Jewish people despised tax collectors. The word pagan here, uh, the word that's translated pagan, is a word uh, that's a derogatory form of the word Gentile. So it doesn't just mean, you know, generally someone who's not ethnically Israelite, ethnically Jewish. It means the idol worshipers. It means the pagans. It means those who are outside the covenant promises of God. Not like in a just stating the fact kind of way, but in like a derogatory negative kind of way. 
And you know who the pagans were in the first century world where the Jewish people were living? That was the Romans. The occupying Romans were the pagans. And the tax collectors were Jewish people who went to go work on behalf of the occupying pagans. And so he brings up these two groups of people who are at the top of the list for the most hated people in the eyes of the average Jewish person. And he says, you hate those people. Even they love those who are just like them. Even tax collectors love tax collectors. Even the pagans will greet other people who are just like them. So in other words, what he's saying is that if you only love people like you, you are no better than the people that you hate. If you love only people who are just like you, you are no better than the tax collector and no better than the pagan who you despise. It's easy to love people who are just like us. But the second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus demands we love our enemies. It's not a suggestion. He doesn't say please. He demands, he commands us to love our enemies. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it would be one thing for Jesus to say, just don't hate your enemies. It'd be one thing for Jesus to say, you know, if you could just like not desire them to be destroyed, that'd be great. It'd be one thing for Jesus to say, you know, you don't have to like them all that much. You don't have to really do anything to actively love them. Just don't commit a felony, right? Like just don't, don't like do something that's like destructive and harmful to them. Like uh, Jesus doesn't say that. In the kingdom of God, the standard is not just don't hate your enemies. In the kingdom of God, the standard is love those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Meaning, Jesus' demand here is that we actively desire the good and the well-being and the flourishing of people we consider to be our enemies. It's not just a passive non-aggression that Jesus is calling us to, he's calling us to actively love and desire and pursue the good and the well-being of people that we consider to be our enemies. Loving our enemies means turning our hearts towards them. Naturally, our hearts are closed off towards our enemies, aren't they? Naturally, our hearts turn back, turn away, recoil from those that we consider to be our enemies. We don't open up our hearts to them. But Jesus is calling us here to turn our hearts towards those we consider to be our enemies. Of course, this is not a one-time thing. What Jesus is commanding us to do is to cultivate an ongoing life posture. We are to continually labor to posture our hearts towards our enemies, not with hatred, but with love in a desire to see their good and their flourishing and even their well-being. This doesn't come naturally, but just because it doesn't come naturally doesn't mean it's not possible. We can turn our, what is happening? What just happened? I pressed a button once and it like freaked out. It was like Matt on slides all of a sudden. (laughs) 
can you can you go back? Yeah, great. Jesus demands we love our enemies. Okay, good, great. Here we go. We can turn our hearts towards our enemies because God turned his heart towards us. Jesus commands us to turn our hearts towards our enemies, and he doesn't leave us to sort of flounder and do that resourceless. He doesn't tell us to do something that he doesn't also provide the power for us to do. We can turn our hearts towards our enemies because God turned his heart towards us. Listen, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice what Jesus is saying here. When we love our enemies and posture our hearts towards them, we bear a family resemblance to our heavenly father who indiscriminately showers mercy on all people. When we posture our hearts towards the good and the flourishing of people that we consider to be our enemies, we are bearing a family resemblance to our God. He causes the sun to shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. So we look at this picture of who God is and we see that God has showered indiscriminately his common grace on all people. And when we choose to love our enemies, we choose to act in line with the character of God. But not only does God just shower his common grace, we know that he's also poured out his saving grace on us as well. Some of us in this room have the verse from the book of Romans where Paul's writing to the church in Rome and he says uh, that line that uh, many of us are familiar with where he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were, what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still God's enemies, God sent his son to give his life in place of ours. Our hearts were darkened our hearts were turned away from God. And instead of waiting until we somehow turned our hearts towards God, God turned his heart towards us in love. God sent us his son to give his life in place of ours, to suffer and to die for us. And that is the clearest example of God loving his enemies. We are, we were the enemies of God until God turned his heart towards us until God moved towards us in love. And so we can turn our hearts towards our enemies because, and only because, only when we see that God has turned his heart towards us. When we turn our hearts towards those we consider to be our enemies, when we do that in love, it is a joyful response to what God has already done for us in the person of Jesus. And so when we see what God has done for us, that we were his enemies and God turned his favor towards us. God loved us and sought our good and flourishing and well-being in spite of the fact that we were his enemies. When we see that, we say, how can I do anything else except love my enemies? That's what God did to me. And so that's what gives us the power. That's what gives us the motivation and the resources to be able to sustain a life of turning our hearts towards people who hurt us, people who don't like us, 
people who are hard to love, that's what sustains us for a lifetime is we get to look to the person of Jesus and we see that God has turned his heart towards us. It's easy to love people who are like us, but Jesus demands we love our enemies. Let's apply this to the world of politics for a few moments. Let me just make a few application points from this. It's easy to love people who are politically like us. Isn't it? Very easy to love people who are politically like us. This looks a number of different ways, but let me just, for just a moment, press into one of the ways that this looks. On the one hand, what this looks like is we assume the best of our people. We look at those who we consider to be a part of our, you know, political group or maybe our political party or, you know, we look at people who are like us and we assume the best of people who are like us. Because after all, we're good people and they're like us. So shouldn't they deserve the benefit of the doubt? And so when there's allegations, when there's controversy, when there's accusations, when there's things like this, well, we say, well, let's just wait until all the facts come out before we make any rash judgments here. You know, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's some, you know, something that we just don't see or understand. Let's just wait until all the facts come out before we start, like, passing judgment on people. And so just, it's natural and it's intuitive for us to love people who are politically like us by immediately and always giving them the benefit of the doubt in virtually every case. No matter what it looks like on the surface, we still give them the benefit of the doubt. But loving people who are like us politically... The opposite of this is also true. On the one hand, we assume the best of our people, and on the other hand, we assume the worst of others. We don't extend the, extend the same charity. We don't assume the best of other people and say, well, you know, let's wait until all the facts come out. They are guilty until proven innocent. They are guilty until some conclusive thing comes out that can prove to me that that person is actually not guilty. Right? We don't treat our political enemies with the same kind of empathy with the same kind of charity that we tend to treat our own people. Because it's easy to love people who are like us politically. The second point of application is this. The true test of our apprenticeship to Jesus is how we treat our political enemies. The true test of our apprenticeship to Jesus, the true test of our discipleship to Jesus, is how we treat our political enemies. Our discipleship to Jesus is truly tested not when it's easy to obey, but when it's hard. You don't have to be married to understand this. That it's easy to stand up on your wedding day when everything is wonderful and everything is perfect and you're in love and everyone's there to celebrate you and your spouse probably looks the best they're ever going to look in their entire life, right? <laughs> It's easy on your wedding day to stand up and say, I promise I'll be faithful to you in sickness and in health. That's easy. The true test of your marriage is when you find out that your spouse has a severely degenerative disease and you now need to wait on them hand and foot. That's the true test of your marriage. Not whether you can stand up on the best day of your life and say something nice. 
Getting married is easy. Being married is hard. The same exact thing is true of our apprenticeship to Jesus. Our discipleship to Jesus is truly tested, not when it's easy to obey him and love people who are like us. Our discipleship to Jesus is truly tested when we are called to love people who are not like us, people who are our enemies, when things are hard. Jesus here does command something that is very hard, doesn't he? I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. My guess is that pretty much all of us here would be able to uh, pretty quickly identify who we consider to be our political enemies. Uh, But just in case, let me give you some diagnostic questions. And who knows, you might find out that you have more political enemies than you thought you did, (laughs) which uh, isn't actually, uh, isn't awesome, but it's data, right? Like we need to know that. If Jesus calls us to love our enemies and we're just blind to people that we consider our enemies, we should know that so that we can love them well, okay? So here's some diagnostic questions just to sort of get your minds thinking and to sort of fill in some blanks with, you know, who are the people I consider to be my political enemies, The first question is this, who do I blame for the way things are, right? So we can all look around at our country and look around at our world and look around at our culture and say, you know, this isn't the way it should be, whether that's the economy or whether it's the moral climate or whether it's, you know, immigration or the border crisis or the climate crisis or whatever other crisis is out there next week. There's all the things we look at and say, this isn't the way it should be. Who are the people that we blame for it being the way it is? Another way to sort of ask that question is to put it uh, a different way. Who do I view as the obstacle to our country or to our world being the way that it should be? Right? If you've got this vision, this picture of like, yeah, this is what our world should be like. This is what our country should be like. Who are the people that need to get out of the way for us to get where we need to go? And when you answer that question, who do I blame for the way things are? you have identified at least some of your political enemies, who you consider to be your political enemies. Second question, who makes me most frustrated and angry, politically speaking? <laughs> you can maybe answer this question in a different way, but uh, just think politically. And, and, and my encouragement to you is listen to your body. God has given us the gift of bodies. We are embodied creatures, and our emotions and our bodies tell us things. So when you begin to talk to a certain person or about a certain person, or when you begin to talk about a certain group of people or to a certain group of people, what happens in your body? You feel your heart rate start to increase. You feel your blood pressure begin to increase a little bit. You start to notice that you take on a little bit of a tone that you don't normally speak with. Listen to your body because those things tell us something and those may be revealing to us someone that we would consider to be our political enemies. Third question, who do I think our country would be better without? Like in your most honest days, who are the kinds of people or who are the specific people that I would say, you know, our country and our world would be far better off if this person simply didn't exist in the first place. And those three questions can help identify who you consider to be your political enemies. And with that picture in mind, 
Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a particular person. With that picture in mind, we go back to the words of Jesus. And we hear him say to us, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I like to imagine what it would be like to be there while Jesus is teaching this for the first time. Okay, imagine that you could like stand behind Jesus and you're totally invisible and you're just like over, you know, you're looking over his shoulder into the crowd of people. As Jesus is first teaching this, which is like, this is like explosive stuff, okay? It's explosive in our cultural environment. It's explosive in the first century world, at least as much, if not more than it is for us. And so as Jesus is teaching this really difficult, really explosive thing, you get to look over his shoulder and you get to just imagine seeing the thought bubbles come out of people's minds. And you can actually like see what they're thinking in that moment. And you can read their thought bubbles. You got to believe that there's like a whole bunch of people who are arguing with Jesus. You got to believe that there's a whole bunch of people who are saying, Jesus, the tax collectors, Really? Do you know who those people are? Do you know what those people do? Do you know how they treat us? Do you know that they value profit over people? Do you know that they have gone to work for the occupying Romans? Do you understand what kind of moral character it takes or lack of moral character to be able to do what they do for a living and sleep at night? Someone would be thinking, the pagans? The occupying Romans, who are the ones who are taxing us, we live under the boot of the Roman Empire. Do you know what their morality is like? Do you know what their sexual ethic is, Jesus? Do you know that it's the Romans who leave unwanted babies on the beach at low tide? Do you know what these people are like? Do you know that they worship idols? Do you know what these people are like, Jesus? And there's for sure some guy who's like not paying attention, who's like, man, I could use a snack right now, <laughs> right? If you could see all the thought bubbles, you, you, you get the whole gamut of it, right? But the point is like, you know that there are people who are listening to Jesus, who are arguing with him in their mind saying, Jesus, yes, I hear what you're saying. Yes, in theory, it's good to love our neighbors. It's good to love our enemies. But do you know who these people are? And they're arguing with Jesus, My guess is that there may be some of us, if I could see the thought bubbles coming out of your heads right now, there may be some of us who are arguing with Jesus right now, saying, yes, I know I'm supposed to love my enemies, but do you know what these people believe? Do you know what they're trying to teach my children? Do you know what they're doing to... Our country, do you know the corruption that exists? Do you know, do you know, do you know? And we are arguing with Jesus right now in our own minds. Saying, yes, Jesus, in a perfect world. And we go back to what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those to persecute you. Right? The true test of our apprenticeship to Jesus is how we treat our political enemies. It does not require a changed heart to love people who are just like you. 
it requires nothing of you different than anyone else in the world to love people who are just like you. It does require a changed heart to love people you consider to be your enemies and to be willing to lay down your life even for them. Our discipleship to Jesus is truly tested not when it's easy to obey, but when it's hard. As we come to the communion table today, we remember that turning our hearts towards our enemies is not a one-time thing. It's a continual, ongoing posture that we have to cultivate to love those who are hard to love because this is counterintuitive. It's a continual process, not a one-time thing, but what we have to leave here today knowing is that turning our hearts towards our enemies has to begin by looking to Jesus. There's a whole lot more. We could take a whole nother sermon or sermon series on, well, what does it actually look like practically for us to love our enemies? I mean, there's all these questions that arise and like, well, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And, and are we condoning this? And are we condoning that? And there's all those questions. And in the wisdom and, and in the power of the spirit, in the context of community, we get to work all those things out together. Those are like real questions. I'm not, I'm not downplaying those, but we can't go to those questions without first looking to Jesus and seeing that in Jesus, God has turned his heart towards us. Jesus moved towards us in love. And so we come to the communion table today, remembering and celebrating that in Jesus, God has turned his enemies into his friends. And as we come forward and as we get to receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, there is no more conclusive proof that God loves his enemies. And there's nothing more powerful to turn us outwards, to go out into the world and to love our neighbors and to love our enemies than to see that that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. As we come to the communion table today, uh, it's appropriate for us to take just a few moments of silence for confession and for reflection. Maybe there's some business you need to do with God this morning. Maybe there's something that you just need to spend some time sitting with God on. And so we want to leave just a, a few moments of space for that. And then once we do, once that time is up, we're going to come and celebrate Christ at the table. So let's take a few moments for silence and confession.